Hola, amigos. This is Billy Sheehan. I'm here with my dear friend, Brian Colburn, on my weekly mixtape. I hope you enjoy the episode, and uh, I'll see you around. Gracias. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. One of the things I'm excited to do each week on My Weekly Mixtape is speak with some of the incredible artists whose songs have graced my mixtapes and playlists throughout my life. Tonight's guest is one that I'm incredibly honored to welcome to the program because he is one of the very reasons I am a bass player today. And I'm talking about the one and only Billy Sheehan, who's joining me tonight on the road, literally, from the Winery Dogs tour bus. Billy, thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Billy, in keeping with the show's theme, tonight what I've done is put together a mix of some of my favorite songs of yours that I'm excited to learn more about. So let's get down to business. All righty. And since you're joining us from the Winery Dogs tour bus, seems like a natural place to start. The Winery Dogs, your power trio featuring yourself on bass, Richie Kotzen on guitar and vocals, and Mike Portnoy on drums, are back with a brand new album entitled Three, which is the band's first full-length album since 2015's Hot Streak, and the first new music from the band since 2017's Dog Years EP. The album's single, Mad World, includes a song-closing bass solo that absolutely makes my jaw drop every single time I hear it. And for context, I have been given permission to play a small clip from the song. So before we move forward, let's take a quick listen. I might have to give it a second for the smoke to clear from the room because of all that fire that just happened at the end of that song. (laughs) (laughs) Now, seriously, Billy, when recording a song like Mad World and taking into account your background with jazz fusion playing, do you ever incorporate an element of improvisation when you're tracking a song like this? Yeah, it's generally I'm just flying with no thought. (laughs) Uh, It's just improvisation. I, I don't plan it out or map it out or anything. I just just go and i enjoy playing like that but the only problem is later i have to go back and learn it which is uh it took me a a while to figure out what i was doing because i really pay no attention when it goes by so i'm not sure what fingering what position on the deck i'm playing so that particular solo was really tough there's a couple of little runs that i did in it one little ascending run towards the end that i was using a new technique with and i forgot how uh what fingers i was using for what and if you got to use exactly what i use when i recorded it or it's not going to work so i finally figured it out and uh taught myself a lesson i should probably run a little gopro camera when i'm recording just so i can at least see what the heck i'm doing so that was a tough one and then to get it up to speed to perform at level Performing live is another level of difficulty. Even if you know what the notes are and play them, you got to do it. You don't get a second take. Uh, There's hundreds or even thousands of people in front of you 
you're standing on stage, you're not sure if you're in a spot where you can hear everything like you should in order to play it. And it can be, there's a lot of other factors that can make it really difficult to play live. So I practiced it a bunch of times and felt confident enough that I could do it live. And I blew it maybe two or three times so far on this tour. Not so horribly blowing it, but it was irrecognizable. But a couple of times I missed a few of the notes, but I wanted to play it accurately how I did it on the record. So, uh, and I don't always do that a lot because oh, there's a lot of improvisational things. Once something is on a record like that, it's kind of a signature little piece that goes in the song. I want to get it right. So I got it right last night. We played uh, St. Charles outside of Chicago, a sold out show at the Arcada Theater. And I hit everything last night, but uh, we'll see the tonight is another story. Well, I've checked out several online clips from this tour, and as far as I'm concerned, you're hitting the nail on the head each and every time. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Now, in between the 2017 Dog Years EP and the new album, you and Mike Portnoy also recorded two full-length albums with the band Sons of Apollo, that being 2017's Psychotic Symphony and 2020's, well, 2020. Do you and Mike have a different approach to crafting the rhythm section with Richie Kotzen in a power trio versus the heavy prog keyboard and guitar sound with Ron Bumblefall and Derek Sherinian in Sons of Apollo? Uh, it's not incredibly different. It's just song by song or band by band. In the Sons of Apollo stuff is a little stricter because the arrangements are kind of prog-ish. They've got a lot of parts, some odd time signatures, some more uh, less bluesy sounding lines that, that are playing like guitar support. Okay, we're back. Sorry. I'm in the tour bus, so we're going to maybe drop out here and there. Sorry about that. No problem. But yeah, I'm all about drums. So whoever I'm playing with or whatever genre, I'm on the drums. I'm looking at the drummer, watching him, hearing him, and it's it, linking up with what he does. So Mike is pretty good at 
a lot of different styles. Straight up rock, I think, is his is what he likes best, which people are often surprised by because he played in a lot of progressive bands. But he, I think, he's like the one of the number one Beatle trivia guys in the world. And yes. Keith Moon is probably his favorite drummer from the Who. So, but he handles pretty much anything uh, stylistically. So uh, I follow the drums, not so much worrying about what band or what they're all about. Uh, within the Winery Dogs, it's more blues-based and soul uh, R&B with Richie's voice. So yes. we play things that way. I remember there's one song off the first record that we play in the show, one of my favorite songs called Regret. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really uh, in the pocket, beautiful ballad, smooth as silk. Timing is, is really nice, but it's almost an R&B kind of song. As Mad World is a little bit too. That's got a lot of Motown in it. So between the two of us, we can adapt to most anything. And we just keep an eye on each other. And we have a good ESP between bass and drums. Where uh, we'll be in the middle of some jam and he'll break off and do some fill. And I'll do the exact same thing on bass without ever having planned it. We'll look at each other on stage and we laugh about it because we come up with the same moves. And that happens with a lot of drummers and myself because I really study what they do and I can anticipate what's going to happen. You were coming around to the four count. He's going to do a fill. I think he's going to do this. And, and what do you know? He did. <laughs> they matched together. So uh, that makes live performance a lot of fun. Well, Billy, one of the tracks from Sons of Apollo that I'd like to touch upon is Goodbye Divinity from the 2020 album that I mentioned earlier. In the music video, both you and Bumblefoot are playing double neck axes, which first off, as a bass player myself, I can only imagine how heavy that friggin' bass is. Very. <laughs> <laughs> so considering how heavy the axe is, I'm guessing there's some sort of musical leverage that playing a double neck bass would allow you in a song like this? In Sons of Apollo, there's a lot of things that are in that utilize a low B note. And on a regular bass, of course, you know, maybe some of your listeners don't, the lowest note is an E. So the B is five half steps down from that. So uh, that would be a five or a six string bass. They have that low B, but a four string doesn't. So I take a regular four string neck and tune it B, E, A, D, which are the last four strings of a five or six string bass. So I can get that low note. But I still have the four-string configuration, patterns, shapes on the fretboard. I don't have to adjust for that. I like the feel of four-string under my hand. It has an arc to it that enables you to play your right hand, gets over the strings easily. When you add an extra string or two, it flattens out, and it makes it harder to get in between strings for my particular style of playing. So I prefer four-string. The double neck has uh, one regular neck and one tuned B-E-A-D. And a lot of people come, well, it's just going to five-string or six-string because I don't like five-string or six-string. It feels completely different on your right hand. And my right hand technique is kind of my, uh, the thing I really rely on a lot to do some of the things I do. And it was built and designed on four strings adding. I play six. I have a six at home on Mr. Big single, uh, top 40. It was a, uh, Bait it up to 14 or number 12 on Billboard. Uh, I used the six string bass for uh, uh, Just Take My Heart. And live, I used the four and I, I could get all the notes, no problem. But I, I like the double neck, it's actually really well balanced. So it wastes a ton. 
but it's well balanced. And those shows were about two hours of intense playing. So every night I was up there with that, whatever, however many pounds it is, uh, 20 or 30 pounds of bass. No problem. You know, it was good. So uh, it, it didn't bother me. But when people play it, and I often take it, I do master classes in uh, Dashville, and I bring my double neck, I bring my original P bass, the wife, I also bring the pinky blue Yamaha that I used on Eat of a Smile and all this, because a lot of people want to see those basses, and they always pick up the double neck. Note how heavy it is, but note how easy it plays. It's really a great playing instrument. So there's a little bit of a uh, back off from some people due to the weight, but it doesn't bother me. And I often make the joke uh, that my chiropractor loves that bass because uh, <laughs> he knows he'll be in business for many years as a result. And he's probably very thankful for that. <laughs> well, since you brought up Eat Him and Smile, I'd be remiss if I didn't also touch on that album because it was the first music of yours that I was introduced to via the amazing lineup of yourself, David Lee Roth, Steve Vai, Matt and Greg Bissonette, and Brett Tuggle. Is there a song or songs from that era that you feel best captures your musical experience with that lineup? Well, the Yankee Rose and Shy Boy and Going Crazy and Ladies Night in Buffalo, that whole record, Eat of a Smile, was, uh, we had a great time uh, recording it, and that tour was a riot. Way different than the Skyscraper Tour. I remember hearing from the guys in the band while they were on the Skyscraper Tour that they it was just awful and they, they hated it, and I believe Steve quit in the middle of that tour, but also agreed to and to finish the tour so i wouldn't leave anybody hanging but he, he he i believe he quit in the middle of that tour it was uh completely different there were lines out the stage that you couldn't cross you couldn't run over there you could you had to stay in your spot on stage run in and smile we ran across the whole whatever 75 yards of stage back and forth up and down the stairs we had a riot on that tour we we're flying all over the place steve and i did a double solo together a bit of a comedy routine also. So the Eat of a Smile was a riot. And there was a lot of animosity generated towards Dave after that. I think, I don't know if it was because the band changed or not, but I remember uh, I was out in uh, LA and someone came up to me and said, well, I just went to the uh, David Lee Roth tour in San Jose. And the part where the surfboard goes across the audience they said it looked like it was really in the ocean because so many people were spitting at him. And oh. I thought, oh, then I love Dave. And I just thought, oh, that is just heartbreaking to hear. So kind of crashed and burned from what I could see uh, in the distance. I was no longer a part of the organization. But Eden's smile was a riot. It was incredible. And I'm supremely grateful to Dave for uh, the opportunity to play with him and in that band, and Steve Vai, Greg Bissonnette, uh, Brent Tuggle, we lost recently. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Steve and Greg are still my dearest friends. I just got a message from Greg, along with Dennis Chambers, one of the greatest musicians I know, dr amazing drummer I play with, and Nias, and, and we're very, we're, we're good friends. So, yeah, but anything off of Eat Him and Smile, I like, even though that's life, the Frank Sinatra tune. We got the original horn charts from the actual recording of that with Frank Sinatra. That was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, that, that Eat Him a Smile was, a, was a, an amazing experience. 
Well, since you mentioned Niacin, your jazz fusion project with drummer Dennis Chambers and keyboardist John Novello, I want to jump ahead to that. To me, it doesn't get any better than the incredible tracks No Man's Land or Hell to Pay when I think of the group. Can you talk about the writing approach you take when playing in a trio with a keyboard player like John Novello versus playing in a guitar-fronted trio with a guitarist like Richie Kotzen in the Winery Dogs? Yeah, keyboards, uh, they approach uh, their lines differently. And they don't always translate. Well, they well, ultimately, they will translate to a fretboard. I don't think there's anything you could do on either one that could be duplicated on the other, depending, of course, on the skill of the operator. But the keyboard lines are different, so I have to approach them different. And sometimes they're tough. And that's why uh, even when I was younger, I learned a lot of keyboard things. I listened to Oscar Peterson, a lot of classical music, Bach, the well-tempered clavier. I had an album set that was by a record company called Fox, a box box. It was a box of three records, and it was seven volumes of three records, 21 records, 42 sides of one guy on a harpsichord. Wow. And that was all the well-tempered clavier, a very famous uh, series of, of pieces of music by Johann Sebastian Bach. And I listened to that whole thing. Unbelievably, I, I, whenever I play it now, I drive people crazy because it's just one guy on a harpsichord for about a day and a half. You know? But it, I learned a lot about composition and how keyboards move as opposed to fretted instruments. There's a style that they go towards. So in Niacin, with the Hammond B3, it was one of my favorite instruments. Not only were the lines keyboard lines, but they're jazzy. So the different tone centers, different ways of moving. Now that was a, a little bit of a hill for me to climb because I, I'm not a jazz player. But fortunately, the other entity within nice it was Dennis Chambers. And his pocket and his groove is so relentless. It grabs you by the throat and you have no choice but to fall in the pocket. He's so great. I often refer to him as the greatest musician I know. And he just sits behind that kit and it's magic. He's so, so great. And so that was a really wonderful connection to make with Dennis. And it really helped me to fit in the pocket of the keyboard lines because I, like I said earlier, I'm all about the drums. So by following Dennis's lead, it really assisted me to fall into the groove that made those lines sound like I might know what I was doing or at least fake that I sound like I know what I'm doing. So, uh, uh, it was a great experience that band. Uh, I hope we do some more in the future, but, uh, the real key factor for me was, uh, Dennis's playing, helping me as a bass player acclimate to a style that I wasn't as fluent. in. though I had played bass to jazz music right out of high school, we actually played, uh, sections of Miles Davis, Mitch's Brew, and a high Ooh. school assembly. Wow. <laughs> at Kenmore East Senior High School. And you should have seen the look on the faces of the people. In the, they didn't know what the heck that was, because that's pretty far out jazz. But yes. we, we did it. We did that, and some Eddie Harris, another great sax player, and some Frank Zappa also. Well, we did some Frank Zappa excerpts. And uh, I don't know if we twisted any minds into a pretzel that day, but so, but, I, but it was something I was pursuing early on until I got to play it or rock situations where it was just so much better energy outlet for me personally. 
Uh, but I still do like a lot of jazz. I've, I've learned a lot from it. But Adias certainly was a, was a great uh, experience for me playing with both those guys because they were so well-versed in it, and I learned a lot. Well, I know I could certainly learn a lot from your jazz playing, so it sounds absolutely fantastic to me. One thing that's always jumped out to me in regards to your bass playing is the tone that shines through in your recordings, no matter what the band or project may be. So for now, let's use Mr. Big as an example. The difference between a song like Addicted to That Rush and the band's massive hit To Be With You, because there must be some kind of process you're going through, be it during the songwriting or in the studio, to consistently achieve the perfect tone for each song that you record. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, very kind of you to say, yes, there's a different approach on a more raucous, wild song like Addicted to That Rush. The bass will have a little more distortion on it, but it's only added to what's already there. Instead of substituting a clean, normal, regular bass tone with a distorted tone, distortion is added to that. So you've always got real bass. Yes. And that has been a lot of the, not so much secret, I talk about all that, but that's part <laughs> of that process. To be with you was just straight up, just bass plugged into a clean, regular, normal amp pretty easy and that first note after the clip when i slide down from uh like a d flat i knock them down uh it's just a regular normal tone and i do believe my hands have a lot to do with it for all musicians here their hands hit the tone and i'm on tour now about three or four weeks in and my calluses are like stone they're really hard and when they pluck the string there's a definitive note I remember I did a rock and roll fantasy camp recently and the, I won't go into the process, but I basically get campers and I'm their, their counselor and I show them how to play a song and then we got to perform it at the end of the camp. And it's uh, you get people of varying degrees of experience, some who can't play at all, some guys that are pretty good. So as I'm rehearsing with them and showing them through things, a lot of other bass players that I know from other big bands, stuff like that, they're all out in the hallways, and everybody can hear each other's band. And three different guys, very famous bass players, open the door and go, are you playing with a pick? I go, no, no, that's my finger. Another knock at the door. <laughs> are you using a pick? No, no, that's my finger. And uh, they all thought I was using a pick because uh, my fingers were really callous. And you get that tack of the note. And on the left hand, too, they're extremely callous. I posted a photo of my left hand torn to shreds, literally, with deep, <laughs> huge, uh, uh, eight-pitch, deep grooves in the fingers. And I love it. People misinterpreted it, thought, thought it was, I was hurt or painful, and offered me all kinds of advice. Go, no, 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 this is good. We want this. We want those grooves. We want our hands torn up. doesn't hurt at all. Well, it hurt. The process hurts. But in the end, you have to have those calluses or you can't really play. I'd rip my hands to shreds. I'm not sound strings, which uh, in a pinch, if I had to cut a two by four, this, I've done this a couple of times. I'll take an old sound string and use it as a wire saw and hack my way through wood with it. It's it's a stainless steel round mount that it, 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 you can use it in an emergency in the woods. Just take <laughs> a bass string off, cut a tree down, and start a fire. So, uh, uh, so tone wise, the hands basically. But again, on a more raucous or wild song, uh, I would uh, add distortion to the regular bass tone that I already have. 
Another thing, when you do distortion on a bass, you lose your low end. That's yeah. why I had to add it to what's there as opposed to switch between one or the other. I often use this as an example on the famous song, Dance to the Music by Sly and the Family Stone, when Larry Graham says, so about and he plays bass, he clicks the buzz tone on, and it's a thin little buzz. And it's just no low end to it at all. Because you hit the distortion, you lose all that low frequency. So my trick, if you will, is don't distort the bass. Do a second signal bath and put distortion on that and mix it in. And that seems to have been very successful. Fascinating. Well, while we're on the topic of Mr. Big, the band just announced the Big Finish World Tour, with the first leg taking the band to Japan and Southeast Asia in July and August, while shows in South America, Europe, and the U.S. are taking place in early 2024. Joining the band on drums is Nick DiVirgilio from Spock's Beard and Big Big Train, taking the spot of the amazing Pat Torpy, who the world sadly lost in 2018. What does returning to the stage with Eric and Paul one last time as Mr. Big, coupled with honoring and celebrating Pat's legacy, mean for you? Mr. Big for me was uh, was my biggest success. And I came out of David Lee Roth. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, precarious time. I didn't have a lot of money. And so I put a band together. I knew Pat and Paul. I found Eric. We got an amazing manager, Herbie Herbert. And we went after about two and a half years. We scored one of the most difficult things to achieve as a number one single so that band beats everything to me and uh, we went through so many amazing adventures together that song to be with you was our passport to the entire world we played everywhere in indonesia australia japan all over europe all over south america incredible so when we lost pat we did a few more shows with a gentleman named matt Starr, who was a great drummer and a wonderful singer but there's little fine points to a drummer that everybody's different. Every different fingerprint, iris, DNA, and it's just hard to replace someone. So we kind of dropped it. Now we haven't played together since, but we thought, well, we'd like to go out again, but we needed to sing alto. Matt was a great singer, but he's a tenor. We need that. We need, we have the three part harmony. Myself, uh, Paul Gilbert and Pat Torby did. We need those three voices. Paul and I could just from, we're both tenors, so we could do low and mid, but we need that high voice. So Nick has a great voice, and he can sing in that range quite amazingly. Plus, he's a finesse, fine point drummer like Matt was. Very similar style. We've heard him play a couple of the Mr. Big songs already that he recorded for us, and it's quite awesome. He's really, really great, and a wonderful guy, too. Uh, so... We wanted to honor Pat and also say a proper goodbye and not a farewell tour that happens every two years. It's <laughs> got to be an actual farewell tour. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever play together again as Mr. Big. I'm sure I'll play with Pat or do something with uh, Eric, uh, maybe something with Dick too. But uh, as Mr. Big, we want to end the chapter. A lot of bands lose a guy, they replace him, they continue on. I don't know if we really wanted to do that. Pat was uh, my closest musical friend of my entire life, really. And I think it's the more honorable thing to do is to pay him tribute and move on. We have all the recordings. All the recordings are there. Everything we did is available. We got other stuff that we'll release that we haven't released, demos and things like that. 
it'll all come out. So I just thought it would be, a, we all agree that it'd be a, to do a proper farewell, honor all the wonderful fans that gave us everything we have, everything I own, my home, my car, everything comes from a fan buying a t-shirt, a ticket, or a record. I never forget that. And during my, my stay with Mr. Big, we had fans that were so kind to us and, uh, and would come to 10 shows in a row. So we, we want to pay them a very strong thank you and give them our gratitude and then pay honor to the great Bat Torby, who was just a, just a wonderful, wonderful man. So that's the story. We kept Nick uh, a little private for a while because he had some other commitments. We didn't want to interfere with uh, what he was doing, but uh, this is the first I've spoken of it on your uh, broadcast here. And I met with Nick the other night. He came out to a Winery Dog show. And just a great guy and a wonderful, incredibly talented man. The Spock's beard stuff is just spectacular. Oh, yeah. And he's sang a lot of that band. So we're, we're looking forward. We're gonna, we already have our rehearsal day set up. We're going to go in and Mr. Big was a singing band. We were a harmony band. Mm-hmm. We did uh, Green City, Sixties Mind, To Be With You, Just Take My Heart, all heavy harmony. Uh, for encores and for special songs, we do Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Three Dog Night, all the harmony bands. So it's important to have that alto, and Nick is going to be just spectacular at it. Well, I, for one, can't wait to hear it live again. Billy, this past fall, your band Talus released the album 1985. And the closing track on the album is a stunning urethral instrumental entitled 7-1-HDH, which is for Phil, written upside down, in dedication to the late Phil Naro. Yep. And once again, for context, I was given permission to play a small clip from the song, so let's do that now. Being a bass player myself, I'd love to hear the thought process behind that track and your left-right split of the, for lack of a better term, lead and rhythm bass parts of the song because it's a truly fascinating listen and a track that really resonates with me. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed that because that was from the heart for Phil. Thus, that's its title. Phil was a, just a wonderful guy, one of the greatest lead singers I've ever known and the easiest person in the world to get along with not a <laughs> molecule of late singers disease. He was just the greatest. And, uh, he sang that record. We knew there was, uh, some health issues, but we didn't know to what extent he sang that record, went up to that mic, knowing that he was in trouble, in big trouble. And, uh, it was only a, a couple weeks after we finished that record that we lost him. Wow. So I have so much respect for him without even considering that, but knowing that he got up to that mic and hit it like he did, knowing that this could be his last hurrah, I'm blown away by that. So I wanted to do something. Uh, we were doing the final mixes, and I wanted to just add something on the record to dedicate to him personally what he meant to me, what he meant to so many people. So we did a little bit of a split. I wanted to lay some kind of a bed 
down that I could play over instead of straight up just solo bass. It would be a little bit more musical and song-ish. It would have more of a theme to it than just a straight up solo. And I also created with the bass a heartbeat that fades out at the end, mm -hmm. uh, symbolizing, of course, uh, losing uh, Phil, a great man. And uh, it was uh, touching to uh, record that. It was just me and my engineer, Scott, at my studio, and uh, it got a little solemn. You know, we really wanted to do something for Phil that that we could, you know, just be a message to the world uh, about his greatness. And uh, hopefully uh, that comes through. Well, not only does it come through, it tugs at your heartstrings without any lyrics, which in no way, shape, or form is an easy feat. It's simply an incredibly beautiful composition all the way around. Thank you. Well, Billy, at this point of the interview, I've brought up a lot of the songs that we've talked about tonight, and I would forever regret if I didn't ask you to put your stamp on the mixtape that we're creating from this interview tonight. So, Billy, if you had to choose one song that you've recorded across your entire career from any project you were in that you feel best defines your musical legacy, what song would you pick and why? Well, that's a tough one, but I would almost instantly default to to be with you because it had such an impact it's a very simple bass part and there's one part in it that i take directly from paul mccartney when he's singing come on baby come on over that would be the one to hold you or show you i forgot what it's like but it's it's right from sergeant peppers uh and i did it on purpose because i love paul mccartney but it isn't a grandiose, flamboyant, uh, a wild-ass, uh, crazy thing, which I do in, uh, in some song. So it would probably be a Mr. Big song or uh, possibly David Lee Ross' version of Shy Boy, which is another one where Steve and I kind of go off. It'd be tough to pick one, but to be with you, people worried that to be with you was going to misrepresent Mr. Big. Because most of our stuff is straight up rock and art heavy. And then we come out with this little campfire ballad. They go, oh, it's going to be. And they would say, oh, you must be really pumped out. They go, are you kidding me? I'm the happiest. I've had sweet pop champagne every day about that song. It's the greatest thing ever happened to any of us. We love that song. And I still do. And I love playing it. We look out over 1,000, 10,000 or more people. And the people are crying. and see tears on me when we play that song. So that. As much as I love the flamboyant technical things and all that, that song was, uh, that means so much to me in so many ways. Otherwise, again, I'm sorry, I'm all over the map here on this answer. Uh, I would say, well, Addicted to That Rush was a pretty good uh, launch for Mr. Big. I know our, our manager, Herbie Herbert, who's one of the founding fathers of the music business, he's the guy that put Journey together. He's the guy that said, why don't we sell t-shirts at the show with the band's name on them? And thus the merch business was born. So, uh, but he loved that song right out of the box and he, we lost him recently too. So in tribute to him, he instantly loved that song. It didn't do well only because it was released, I believe in a very crowded field. A whole bunch of bands came out at that same time. The first Mr. Big record that had a guy from a big band and some other guys. In it and uh, so that formula was repeated over several bands. It got a little confusing, 
So we managed to let, make it through to lean into a record and then went forward from there. But I, I might say addicted to that rush could be one of them too. But that's a tough question to answer. <laughs> you got me on that one. <laughs> well, Billy Sheehan, being one of my first and biggest bass guitar influences, I can't even begin to say how thankful and honored I am to have you on the show. Thank you for the decades of amazing music you've created. And most importantly, thank you for taking the time tonight to speak with me on my weekly mixtape. Absolutely. My pleasure. Your, uh, your kindness, I'm very thankful for. And I'm, if, to know that I've influenced another player in a positive way is what it's all about. And that's my pay. That's, that's my compensation. That's more important to me than anything. So I'm very glad to hear that and uh, continue playing. And I hope I see you around. That you most certainly will, my friend. Mixtapers, remember, you can find my weekly mixtape on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at my Weekly Mixtape. You can also head to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to hear all of the music we've discussed in tonight's episode via the playlist embedded on the Songs of Billy Sheehan page, as well as to check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon Mixtaper at Patreon.com forward slash My Weekly Mixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.